This episode of Infinite Potential is sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn makes sure your job post is seen by the people you want to hire, people with the skills, qualifications, and other interests that will help your business grow. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn. Use LinkedIn Jobs today and make mindfulness part of your hiring process. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash infinite, linkedin.com slash infinite. Terms and conditions apply. Dear listeners, as we begin work on our second season of Infinite Potential, we wanted to bring you a three-episode journey in which we explore metahuman principles. I have a new book out on this very topic titled Metahuman Unleashing Your Infinite Potential. Meta simply means beyond. As you begin to become aware of the ways in which you participate in the creation of your own reality, you can change the quality of your life. And what better place to start this shift than with the heart? The first sign of life we experience is the heartbeat. From inside the womb, the heart begins to stir, letting us know the being inside is alive. That consciousness is expressing itself in the form of a baby. And when it stops, we know that this form has ended. We are mesmerized by the undeniable power of the heart and have given this muscle, this piece of plumbing, higher meaning. The heart is viewed as the center of love and kindness, the seat of emotion. From the heart comes desire, the desire to express, create and connect. It can be opened, it can be broken. The heart represents strength and fragility at once. But the question remains, does it have a soul? When you see it, it glistens. I've always believed the heart was our most poetic organ for a reason. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential, where we explore what makes us conscious beings and why it matters that we are. When considering the heart-soul connection, I wanted to talk with a health expert who has dedicated his life's work to cardiology, both as an innovative heart surgeon at New York Presbyterian Columbia Medical Center and as a promoter of wellness to millions on television. My old friend, Dr. Oz. If I could just hijack this podcast for a second. When I was a resident studying heart surgery, my secret little guilty pleasure was I'd go home, turn on PBS, and watch you talk about stuff that was profoundly important. And my wife and I would talk about, for hours, about the things you had just said. 
And it really changed my mind about what a doctor could do. I mean, you're a, you know, a very respected endocrinologist at the time. Here you are talking about stuff that doctors just didn't do. And we talked about you know, blood pressure medications and exactly how much to take on, that, on television, which is like watching paint dry. So you opened my eyes and a lot of my generation's eyes to what a doctor could do. And it's part of our civic responsibility to speak out on things that matter, and you've taken the lead, so God bless you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mehmet. You're not only a cardiac surgeon, you have an MBA, but you are also an educator and an entertainer. And education and entertainment are soon going to be the best way to educate people about well-being and health as well. You started your career with Oprah. How did that happen, by the way? Oprah's story is fascinating because I had my wife, Lisa, mm-hmm. who's the main reason I'm in entertainment because it wasn't mm-hmm. on my vision board, had created a show called Second Opinion. And we went to Discovery Channel and created the show. And they said, you need to get some big name guests to come on board. Otherwise, people aren't going to know the show exists. Well, who's the best known person of all is Oprah, for television anyway. So I called Gail King, who I knew socially, and Gail, God bless her, she now hosts CBS Morning News, but back then she even was a superstar, really good at understanding people, convinced Oprah to come on my show. So there was a hotel out here in New York City where Oprah was getting her hair and makeup done. <laughs> and I just waited next to the room. And when she was done, she walked by my room. And what was supposed to be a five-minute conversation became an hour conversation. And uh, there were a bunch of articles written when she came when the show aired. And her team liked what was going on. And they invited me on her program. And over time, Lisa and Oprah and others in the team began to strategize how we talk about health. Because Oprah's fundamentally a teacher. Yes, she is. She can be a preacher, well, but she's a teacher. And as are you. Well, I've, I've learned that, yeah. you know, from the best. And I also recognized that working with her, I would learn a lot about how to teach the average American things they really wanted to know but didn't know they needed to know. And the biggest lesson she gave me of all, and I'll share it with you, I think you know this instinctively, is people don't change based on what they know. They change based on how they feel. If you get people to true. feel differently about what they're facing, it makes a huge difference in whether they're willing to go along for the ride that's in their best interest. So for 11 years, we've had the Dr. Ross show. It, yeah. it seems to be the number one health show in the world. We are in almost 100 countries. Yeah, I've seen you in places like <laughs> India and Hong Kong and, and Singapore. All people and have the same issues. We're all struggling, which is always it's interesting to me because I get to go visit all these countries. And when I am there and they'll tell me honestly about their health issues, it's the exact same conversations we're having here. They have different solutions, but the same struggles, which is in many ways redeeming because it shows us that we're meant to have these challenges. It's not supposed to be easy. Life's supposed to be about finding that serpentine path towards wellness. And my job, and you've done this your whole career, I think, is to be a field guide. It's not that we have all the answers, but we have the key clues when you need them to guide the next part of your journey. But you got to take the walk yourself. And so why did you choose cardiology? Cardiac surgery chose me. I see. It's, it's, Tell me about I couldn't have, For example, I could not have been an endocrinologist the way you are. I don't have the personality, the patience. Endocrinologists are network thinkers, I've always thought. You can correct me. But people who understand hormones understand how one chemical can do 60 things and it influences another chemical and together they do 3,600 things and so on and so forth. Ultimately, trillions of things are happening in the body in every cell. And you've got to figure that out and diagnose people who are manifesting a few of those. In heart surgery, it's a lot simpler. The heart's beating or it's not. 
It's pretty binary. If the patient dies, it did not go well. And you have numbers that tell you as you're heading towards death or getting better. And so you have a lot of information rapidly coming at you. And it's not just the signs, not, not just the squiggly signs everyone thinks of of the heart. You actually hear in the operating room the patient's heartbeat and respiratory uh, rate, and you also hear their oxygenation. So if it's going beep, 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 that's a heart going at a good pace. If it's boop, 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 that's a low oxygen because it's lower tone at a fast heart rate. So you have auditory input, visual input. You can smell what's happening around you a lot of times. And then there's a lot of people all doing the same thing and yelling things out to you. If you like that commotion, that action, and you like a lot of information coming at you that you have to very quickly discern down to a couple action steps, then heart surgery is a good, good field for you. If you don't like that, if you need it to be a bit more toned down, if you need a little more time to figure out, make the right decisions, then definitely do not be a heart surgeon. But I learned something very important from a colleague of mine who was a mentor as well, and he was having a bad day in the operating room. And you know something that got cut the wrong way and it was bleeding and people were running around and everyone's yelling and screaming. And he looked around and he said, in my time, and everyone, by the way, is offering their two cents about what to do. Everyone's got an idea. And he's looked up and he said, in my time of need, I do not want to be surrounded by intellectuals. <laughs> I want to be surrounded by people of action. You know, what are you actually going to do? And that's very much a, a heart surgeon's, actually any surgeon's mentality. Because ultimately, your biggest enemy is indecision. And that's a pretty good metaphor for life. Because when you're not deciding, you just decided. Mm-hmm. And it's very dramatic. Whatever you do is the patient comes in acutely distressed, you act fast, and then the results are dramatic. It's a slap in the face when it doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. You can't hide from the pain. You have to go tell the family exactly what went down. Obviously, it didn't go the way you planned it or you wouldn't be having that conversation. Thankfully, it's, you know, it's been remarkable to see the advances in the field, but especially early in my career, you were doing operations when there was a 25% mortality rate. I mean, think about that. One in four people would not survive a lot of these operations. That's, that's hard as a person to take home with you. And I thought that was difficult. And then I was talking to a guy named C. Walton Lillyhigh. I don't know if you remember that name. I do. Iconic heart surgeon at the dawn of the field. And he was doing heart surgery in Minneapolis, which is where a lot of this started. Only because the, the inventors were sitting in their cold garages because they couldn't go outside because it was so cold, inventing things. And so these guys built an incredibly advanced mechanism of taking care of people, kids in particular, who had congenital heart defects. And C. Walton Lillyhigh would hook mothers up to their children. And the mother would become the heart-lung machine. The mother's blood and her heart pumping would once again pump blood through the child's vessel so they could stop the kid's heart and then rapidly fix the hole in the heart or you know, whatever the condition was that was causing the child to be blue or the many pathologies. In any case, I was telling him, lamenting to him the fact that I was doing heart transplants and mechanical hearts and they were high-risk cases. And he said, I was the only person who did an operation where there was a 200% mortality. Because wow. I could actually lose the child and the mother in the same operation. Oh I took, you know, and I thought to myself, that's really heavy. And then he said, in reality, the biggest challenge he ever faced in his life and just think about this. This is in the mid-50s. You're doing things that people don't think are possible, and sometimes they don't think they should be done. And you're operating on a child who's going to die from a heart defect, and you fail. And it's 12 noon, and you just pronounced a kid dead. And he said you'd have to go out and talk to that mother and deal with her emotions 
and the pain that she'd never see her child again. And then you'd walk right next door and take a child out of another mother's hands, a mother handing her child to you so you could save that child's life. And you'd have to go back into the operating room and do it again, knowing what had just happened that morning. He said it took remarkable, unbelievable emotional resilience just to be able to believe you could do it. And that actually is what separated those giants. It wasn't that they were brave enough to go forward, it's that they were strong enough to keep going forward. Dear listeners, before I continue, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor. The incredible story we heard from Dr. Oz is repeated across so many different industries. The drive to innovate, take risks, and succeed comes from within. One of our goals is to illustrate this fact in our conversations with our guests and to inspire our listeners to try new things to improve their own lives. Not only do we hope our conversations inspire action, but we like to provide tools to make those changes, which is why I want to talk to you about hiring with LinkedIn. LinkedIn makes sure your job post is seen by the people you want to hire, people with the skills and qualifications that will help your business grow. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn and why companies rated LinkedIn Jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. Use LinkedIn Jobs today and make mindfulness part of your hiring process. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash infinite. Again, that's linkedin.com slash infinite to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So you're still a practicing cardiac surgeon, right? I operated yesterday, actually, on a friend of mine. How many I, days do you operate? One day a week, I go to the operating room. And all kinds of cardiac surgery? I do all the different cases. I, my specialty is valves, actually. I invented okay. the devices that we use to fix the mitral valve from the groin. And there's a technology that we commercialize that does the same thing for the aortic valve, the, the heart valve that, that regulates blood coming out of the heart. And those two technologies now have been proven to save lives. The one that I invented actually reduces not just the chance of dying by 50% in some conditions, but it cuts the cost in half as well. So that's a unique combination. It is still coronary artery disease, still the number one killer of our culture right now. Num- number right? one by far. It's number one operation that's done by heart surgeons. Number one cardiac procedure. It's a it's a massive, massive problem. So you know when I was a resident, it was the same time that Dean Ornish was at Harvard. He was beginning to talk about reversal of heart disease. It wasn't kind of a meme then. I personally now through the years, have seen people with significant coronary artery disease who have actually reversed some of it. Not only have the symptoms gone away, but the angiogram shows that the arteries are not as clogged as they were before. So do you buy into the reversal of heart disease? Well, absolutely. And Dean Ornish's program, which is a Medicare-supported program, they pay for it, actually. Mm -hmm. That's how concrete the data is, is remarkable. 
I, mean, I don't understand why everybody who is at risk for heart disease is not taking his program. Mm-hmm. It reduces the chance of going back to the hospital. If you've had a problem, if you had a stent or a bypass, you don't have to go as often. You don't have more complications. You have uh, less challenges to living a normal life. You avoid problems with other parts of your body. And it's not rocket science. It's, again, a primarily plant-based diet. He's very careful about some of the fats and the sources of those fats. Uh, coming to grips with the emotional issues that often are around you. And that was the thing that always used to strike me when I was doing heart transplants. When your heart rejects you, when your heart fails you, you feel abandoned. And Dean was one of the first people to really pick up on that and say, we got to deal with those issues as well. If whatever anger, hostility is driving you, because it's, it's not being mad at someone that causes the problem. It's wishing they would die. It's the hostility that's the problem. Not feeling like you're a raindrop falling into the ocean of humanity is a really big issue that if you only treat that with a medication for cholesterol, you're missing the boat. Let me go back to some very basic things and ask you, you know, over the years I've thought about lifestyle as having six principles, which I call the six pillars of well-being. And they pertain to heart disease, they pertain to inflammation, I think they pertain to every disease. Specifically about heart disease though, because we're talking about to a cardiac surgeon, number one, sleep. What's your take on sleep? I've read that sleep could, lack of sleep could not only be a risk factor for Alzheimer's, but for premature death from cardiovascular disease as well. Sleep is the single most underappreciated health problem in America. We don't respect its importance. We spend a third of our time trying to do it. We think we're macho if we don't have to sleep. Uh, Not only does it cause problems that you would expect, you know, you fall asleep at the wheel and crash your car, you're not alert at work, and presenteeism is a gargantuan problem. Absenteeism is a whole different ballgame, but being there at work but not being present is a real sap on American business. But there are things that sleep causes that you would never have expected. It causes hypertension if you don't sleep. So for a lot of people who think, oh, well, I don't, don't know what's going on here. Why am I on these medications? Sleep actually helps those folks a lot. It causes weight gain. When you don't sleep, your brain craves four things. It craves sleep, but it also craves sex. You crave water, you crave food. And so if you don't get enough sleep, you've got to check the boxes. You make up for it with food. Think about the late afternoons when you get tired making decisions all day long. You'll start craving food of any kind, but especially carbohydrates. So people who don't sleep crave food. They eat carbohydrates. That's that's what their brain's telling them to eat. And they gain weight. And that leads to a lot of the other chronic issues and inflammation we speak to. It seems to be linked to reduction in immune function, which is one of the reasons cancer rates seem to increase in people who have sleep apnea. Sleep apnea itself is dangerous because you can suffocate to death. Um, and have arrhythmias and heart attacks and a lot of other issues that are related to that specific problem with sleep, but restless leg syndrome, pain conditions, anxiety, depression, substance abuse. There are lots of reasons why you might not sleep, but the most common one is you rile yourself up watching the news or you're looking at your phone before you lie down and you're already a little anxious and then you can't get to sleep again. And that bright blue light that you look at turns off melatonin secretion. And melatonin is not really a... It's not a sleeping hormone, as you know. It's a circadian hormone. It tells you it's nighttime. And an immunomodulator as well. Exactly. So not allowing your melatonin to naturally go where it needs to go, which is what would have happened to our ancestors, right? The sun would have set. Orange light would have come from the sun as it set. Tells your brain it's nighttime, and you go to bed. That's why if you ever go camping, you know, anyone who's been camping, you have to fall asleep. It's fun. You can't possibly stay awake. I 
try to sleep eight hours every night and uh, 15% has to be deep sleep and 15% REM. Do you agree with that? Not only do I agree, I do it myself. Mm -hmm. I work at it. I don't naturally pop my head down. You don't fall asleep. You work at sleep. Mm -hmm. And I actually measure my sleep. with. I have an app called Sleep Score. Yeah, I use that too. Yeah, so every night I go to bed, I turn it on, and I wake up in the morning, and I see how much of the RAM, how much deep, uh, one, two, three, four. Uh, Who woke me up? There was. I remember one day I woke up, and it gives you a grade, by the way. This mm-hmm. one, whatever I use, but everyone should use something. And my grade was a fifty-three. I'll never forget because oh, I'm always in the eighties and nineties. I yeah. mean, I'm a good. My, my wife gets mad. I'm competitive. I'm a competitive <laughs> sleeper. Right. And so I, I'm livid. I don't understand it. I bang the phone against it. It's not working. You know, give me a better grade. And then I saw that there were two times in the night that I woke up. I wasn't even aware. And as we had a new dog, and the puppy would come up in the bed and wake me up. Oh boy. And I be and I and I, I didn't even notice it. And having a pet come into your bed is or a child is a major cause of insomnia in America. <laughs> Just a warning. So measure your sleep, and if it's not normal, figure out why and fix it. Well, in the Eastern wisdom traditions, awareness never leaves you, even in deep sleep. The mind goes blank in deep sleep. The activity of the mind, but awareness never leaves you. Second pillar of well-being: meditation and stress management. You know, we just finished a study published in Nature where a one-week retreat and we collaborated with our friend Rudy Tanzi and many others. yeah. Yeah, and many others. One week of a meditation retreat, all the genes that were responsible for homeostasis and self-regulation went up some 17-fold over baseline. All the genes that were responsible for inflammation went down significantly. I don't think there's any other drug that does that. I know that you're a meditator as well. What's your take on meditation as prevention of heart disease and even reversal of heart disease? I didn't start meditating because I thought it was going to be cool. I started meditating because I met person after person after person who was incredibly successful in the way I wanted to be successful, which is they didn't sacrifice all to work. They worked hard and smart. And they had somehow found the way of being wise in how they used their life force, their chi, to, to affect the planet in a beneficial way. And they were all meditators. So I called around and I found out who had taught them and I got in touch with my case was Bobby Roth. Yeah, and good friend of mine. I took the whole family. We took a bunch of classes together, and I still call Bobby and mm-hmm. get primers. I usually do transcendental meditation, but mm-hmm. I do other types of meditation mm-hmm. as well. I benefited tremendously from it. It centers me. I don't always do it perfectly. Sometimes, at least in my thought process, the life is full of waves, and you try to try dive below the waves, mm-hmm. and even if you get your feet wet, it still counts. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do it perfectly. And sometimes I don't get there that well. Sometimes I, I'm just fantastic. I'm particularly able to meditate if I've done some sporting activity that's not competitive. Yoga, or just a general workout. If I play tennis against my son, no one can rest after that. You know, either enjoy or pain yes. having lost. But more often the latter these days. But but if I'm if I can do something that loosens my body, it loosens my mind, mm-hmm. and then I can just spend 20 minutes in a place that's just blissful. That is going to allow you to be much more impactful for the rest of the day than try to struggle for five extra minutes to try to hack everything. Pillar number three, uh, movement. And when I think of movement, I think both of physical exercise, but also I notice that you have a yoga routine. And what I've learned now is exercise might stimulate your sympathetic nervous system, 
but yoga particularly and, and breathing exercises like pranayam selectively stimulate different parts of the vagus nerve, which is the nerve that is responsible for self-regulation and healing and homeostasis. A yoga routine actually stimulates every single branch of the vagus nerve. No exercise can do that. And if you combine that with breathing, uh, and you combine that with, say, 10,000 steps a day, you've got a very good routine. Perfectly stated. I learned yoga when I was in medical school from mm-hmm. Sandy McClanahan, who's a doctor. Sure. I thought, my goodness, a female physician who's broken all the rules and does yoga, that there's mm-hmm. something good here. I got to learn. Mm-hmm. She started teaching me, and I had played football in college. I began to notice that a lot of the basic poses at the beginning were stretches I did in, in, before the games. Correct. I thought how, how crazy it is that we're doing exactly the same positions, except this is much more mindful. Yeah. I was just, you know, trying to get in some weird Well, the pose. yoga asanas, the word asana means seat of awareness. Is it? Does it really? That's what oh, it means. Beautiful. So each yeah. pose is a seat of awareness. Right. Awareness is not in the brain. It's in every cell of your body. Which is nicely stated because it gets us out of our heads. Yes. And then as your hips loosen up and your whatever part of your body is going to yeah. relax, then I find my mind loosening up as well. Correct. And so I do yoga every morning, about seven minutes, not, not a lot. If I have time, I'll do an hour. I have a whole routine that I'll do, and I have different ones, and I have people that I like that can teach me. So mm-hmm. I, I, just, I get audio tapes of them and just listen to their voice and their cadence and their music. And But it's it's customizable. It's so elegant now, and there's so many different wonderful yoga offerings yes. on, uh, on different digital platforms that it makes it much easier than in the beginning. But it by itself, forget about the mental benefits, physically changed me. Because most surgeons get hunched over, uh, often are undergoing back surgery or have to leave the business because they're orthopedically constrained, their back so messed up from leaning over patients. I don't have any of that. I never experienced the natural history that befell so many of my colleagues because I would just take a little few minutes every day and make sure that I was limber enough to appreciate life. And the other thing is about, about health that I, I try to always emphasize, if you can understand what's happening inside your body, if you can change what's happening inside of yourself, you can change the world outside of you. That's it. Right? But if you can't That's change it. your own body, how can, then you're impotent when it comes to making the yeah. world better. Yeah, yeah. And too many people are complaining about the world and they haven't dealt with themselves. That's right. At least deal with the one person only you can deal with. Dear listeners, let's take a moment to reflect on how making decisions that benefit your body have an intimate impact on your mind and your ability to make a difference in the world. It requires mindfulness, meditation, and the ability to be in the moment. But there are always things in our lives that can easily distract us from our ultimate goal. For business owners, this might be the difficulty of finding the right candidates who can help grow your business when there are so many qualified applicants and not enough tools at your disposal. To find the person truly meant for your business, I recommend you use LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for so you can hire the right person fast. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn. Use LinkedIn Jobs today and make mindfulness part of your hiring process. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash infinite. Again, that's linkedin.com slash infinite 
to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Pillar number four, nutrition. When I was practicing as an internist, people would come to me and say, you know, I changed my diet, my asthma went away or my arthritis went away or, you know, I had an easier time getting that chemotherapy and I went into a remission. I never believed them. I did, said, how does changing a diet reverse these diseases? And now, of course, we know all this stuff about the microbiome and, you know, how there are 99% more bacterial genes in our body than human genes. And the first thing they encounter is food. So you, I'm sure now I've seen you talk about microbiome and nutrition and heart disease. Say a little bit about your take on that. On purpose, I'm making noise, pulling a plastic bag of almonds out of my bag. Yes. These are raw almonds. You might say, why is he walking around with almonds? And what you're saying is so true that I'm not willing to let fate control my destiny. So if it's noon and I'm hungry, I'm going to go foraging through a vending machine like most people. But I don't want to have my rotten tendencies dominate my life. So I carry with my in my bag, wherever I am, and I'm never without them, everyone knows this, something that I know I can eat if I get hungry. Because I never want to be hungry. It, it, it really, I really have an issue with having you know, a, a hunger in my body. I just, I can't focus. I, I'm not as sharp as I need to be. And I'm probably like most people who are listening. So because I respect the power of the microbiome and the importance of food, because when you walk into a grocery store, you walk into a pharmacy, basically. I make sure I leave the food that I want to eat wherever I am. And I make it easy to do the right thing by, in this case, carrying raw almonds with me, which I know that I can just chomp on before or after this interview, whenever I might need them. And then I have my baseline foods always around me. And I don't skimp on food. And you know, I'll tell you, it affects my staff a lot. So I started my show <laughs> 11 years ago at 30 Rockefeller Center in an iconic studio. It's called Studio 6A. And that's where the David Letterman show had been there. Johnny Carson was there. Grant Parr, I mean, these you know, iconic folks. Right across the hall was another iconic studio. Right above us, by the way, is Saturday Night Live. So yes. there's all this creative juice there. Uh, I've been to your show many right, times. Yeah. Right across the hall was Jimmy Fallon. Yes. Jimmy and I started the same day. And we've grown up together. We you know, remain good friends. Jimmy's staff, the Roots and all those guys who I adore, well, they'd have pretzels, potato chips, and beer, and <laughs> hot dogs, and so, you know, pastrami, and kielbasa. My side, my craft food table for my staff is salmon, eggs, onions, which have allium in them, garlic if you wanted to. If, you know, it, it, these all have medicinal elements to them. And so we would punk each other all the time. And I would always joke with him that if he had a daytime show, his team could not have eaten what he was feeding them three meals a day. That's right. And my team could keep going and going and going because they were eating right the whole time. Right. So again, I made it easy for them to do the right thing. If they don't want to eat healthy food, then they could leave. But why would you buy the leaving when there's healthy food there? I do believe in America, we've woken up to that reality. And more and more people now, not only are bringing the healthy food with them, but are seeking it out at our eating institutions. And certainly the grocery stores are reflecting that. Because if you look at the profits of products that are plant-based and mm -hmm. quote-unquote better for you, mm -hmm. they're thriving. They're growing faster than the foods that historically we would have tolerated. Pillar number five, emotions. We all grew up in traditions where they said love heals. 
Many years ago, I read a book by a neuroscientist, internist, who actually created a template for how love restores homeostasis. It's the first time I actually read a biological basis for why love is so healing. And doesn't matter what the disease is, cancer, autoimmune disease, heart disease, if there is absence of love, the healing will be interfered with. You describe it beautifully. It makes perfect sense. And we crave it. We crave it. And makes us safe, right? I was taught by a professor of mine early on that I needed to sit next to the patient when I talked to them in the bed. And oftentimes these are deep discussions. And if you're standing, you're looking down on them. Which is a lot of people did that. They didn't even enter the room. Sometimes they'd enter the room just to auscultate the patient for a second. But half the time they were standing in the door. Trying to get out. Trying to get out. Because they they had to fill forms. And I thought it was sort of corny when I first started because I wanted to be a big studly doctor. And why would I have to sit down and be you know, touchy-feely with my patients, but he was a good teacher, so I would sit there, and usually you'd grab their wrist, check the pulse. You sort of can feel what they're feeling at that time. And I was, I had operated, I did a mechanical heart uh, implant on an 18-year-old kid, and uh, he was having a difficult time, and then one day, his pump stopped working. And these pumps, the way they initially worked is you pump air into them and out, air in, out, and every time the air came in, you'd pump your blood, and then the piston would withdraw, and then the blood would fill the pump, and he'd back and forth. I didn't know what to do. He was dying. Blood pressure dropped to nothing. He was unconscious. And I remember what my teacher had said. So I sat down. I was a young surgeon. Sat down next to my patient, and I grabbed his hand just to hold it. And when I did that, I pulled his arm forward towards me, and his arm had kinked the pump, the tube. <laughs> And so as soon as I pulled his arm, the tube straightened, the pump began to work again. Oh my God. And he came back to life again. He was dead. And I always tell the residents when I'm teaching them, I said, if for no other reason that you might actually find something that no one else who's standing around is going to find, sit next to the patient. Sit next to the patient. Independent of all the many benefits and wisdom that you've shared, (laughs) there's something else that might happen. That's so beautifully said. Last pillar that I talk about is, uh, and you might be aware of this, is something called grounding or earthing. Some people have noticed that when animals get sick, pets get sick, they burrow themselves in the ground and they stay there till they get better. Of course, anecdotally, when you walk barefoot on the earth or on grass or on the beach, you feel better. Now I'm told that negative ions come from the earth, neutralize the excess free radicals, and furthermore, maybe reset your circadian rhythm. So there's this whole movement. There's a film coming out, there are books coming out on grounding devices. I did a show on this. Oh, you did a show. They're sick buildings, you know, too. Yes. They're buildings that, because they're not well-grounded, seem to accumulate this. We we can't measure it, but the inability to measure doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, in our own family, when our kids were being bad, Mm -hmm. we just sent them outside. And part of the reason we did not live in the city of Manhattan, although I love the city and I'm you know, not here mm-hmm. from originally, but I've lived here most of my adult life, is we wanted to have a lawn. So when the children were being bad, we would do what parents have done for eons, which is to say, go outside and play, be home by dark. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so they run around barefoot in this grass, making noise. And there's also data even in children who are suffering on the autism spectrum. Uh, that if they go outside, the sensory input seems to be the right amount. 
They don't get overwhelmed. I bet you there's a grounding element as well. But the ability of nature just to heal you by allowing it to play a role in who you are, yeah. it, it, it's, it comes back to the, the broader theme that there's a lot of wisdom that our ancestors accumulated over a long period of time, at least 70,000 years, probably 300,000 years, uh, depending on which archaeological ruins you're, and findings you're believing. That's a long time. And over the last 100 years, we've tossed most of those to the corner with a better path. And I think it's worth being cautious about the value of being these older healing traditions. Mm -hmm. We don't have to take them hook, line, and sinker, but to ignore them, I think, is at our own peril. As physicians, we were always taught about the heart as a pump, right? Pacemaker, it's a pump. That's what it does, the mechanical heart. It's your internal metronome. It's an internal metronome. Then as I navigated the whole mind-body realm, I learned about the emotional heart. You know, every emotion affects the heart. Mm -hmm. And also the, the fact that the heart has neurons, you know, just like the brain has neurons. And then ultimately the spiritual heart, you know, which is just loving awareness. And there's something very unique about the heart in that even minor stresses show up as heart rate variability, which is an early sign of distress. Is the heart the seat of intelligence or is the brain of which follows what? I don't know if it's a seat of intelligence, but we always talk about the heart being the seat of the soul. So, yeah. And there's a place in the heart, if you look through the aortic valve when you're changing the aortic valve, where there's a, a, a membrane Mm-hmm. And through that membrane, the electrical channels pass. Mm-hmm. And in that one spot, the chambers of the heart touch. And we. All the chambers, all the four. Three chambers. of the four. Oh, three of the four. The, 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 and two of them are critical. Mm-hmm. In addition to the chambers, the electricity passes through there. And if there was any damage done to that area, you lose the, the electrical pumping of the heart, you lose the ability of the heart chambers to function normally, and you lose the ability of the left and the right heart to function separately, because they have to, right? Because one heart pumps to the lung, the other side of the heart pumps to the body. You don't want those mixing. And we call that the soul. That's the one part of the heart we're now allowed to touch, and you respect that part of the heart. Every surgeon learns where it is early on. What is it called, technically? Or it's, where it's, is it's, it? it's right beneath the aortic valve. I see. And it's the, mem- mem- the membranous septum. But you, when you see it, it glistens. And I've always believed the heart was our most poetic organ for a reason. The soul is basically orchestrating life through the pacemaker. That very nicely said, yes. The soul plays a role, I think, in a lot of things, but certainly at that level, it's, it's palpable. Do you think the future of well-being is now not just in the hands of the medical doctors who are great at saving lives, but we need educators, we need entertainment, education, and knowledge to come together? Because what we're learning is that 95% of even those mutations that predisposed to disease are not fully penetrant. Only 5% of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant. The rest are influenced. And that's where education, entertainment, and knowledge come together. And that's what the Dr. Oz Show is all about. I think if we can get people to realize that they need to be the world experts on their bodies, Mm -hmm. we'll all be in a better place.
That sound, that's your call to action. From the heart outwards, you can be the best steward of your wellness. And that's not just good for your body, it's good for your soul. Join me here for the next in our special series on MetaHuman. And my new book, MetaHuman, is now available wherever you buy books. If you enjoyed today's episode, please find us on Apple Podcasts to rate and review the show. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Until next time. Now it's time for our gratitude list. Infinite Potential is produced by Katie Shepard, Jan Cohen, and David Shadrach-Smith, and edited by Andy Jaskiewicz. The audio engineer is Bob Tabador. Carolyn Rangel is our associate producer, and Serena Regan is the coordinating producer. We especially thank our guests, sponsors, interns, and everyone who has contributed to bring infinite potential to you. Our show is created and executive produced by David Shadrach-Smith, Jan Cohen, and me. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential.